I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll catch up with the latest on TikTok. Will Microsoft purchase the social media company? And why is the U.S. government trying to get a cut of the deal? Plus, we'll look at how new sanctions on China over its treatment of the Uyghurs may impact U.S. and Chinese businesses. And we'll see what progress the U.K.'s trade minister can make on her trip to Washington this week. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, I have one question to ask you to start this off. Are either of you on TikTok or have you ever seen TikTok or been part of TikTok or know why President Trump wants to wet his beak to get some of TikTok? Well, look, it's a great question. And I'm way too old for TikTok. <laughs> I'm way too old for TikTok. Yeah. So, But I, I, I am aware of what it is. It's a very interesting little app. It's a, basically a music video sharing app. So it's a, it's a social media platform. But here I, I go back to the authorities at Reddit, Reddit being the sort of the nerd board yep. of, the, of the internet. And there's a Reddit blog on TikTok. And one of the young guys with too much time on his hands went in and got the code and posted it. And what he posted was very frightening. So we got to talk about why the U.S. government cares about TikTok in the first place, which is the way the president of Reddit put it, the CEO of Reddit. He said, this is basically a piece of spyware that happens to have a video app associated with it, that it is it collects a massive amount of information on the users, that, that it basically exists to collect everything, biometrics, location data, uh, contacts, financial information. It listens apparently all the time, whether it's on or off. And so it, it has the characteristic, while it is a social media platform, it has a very appealing presentation to young people. It's being used a lot by young people. And of course, the question then is, this is a Chinese company, so it is the People's Republic of China who decides what happens to all this data that's being collected. And companies like the Washington Post are getting into the TikTok business because young people are into it. So it's they don't quite know what to do with TikTok yet in terms of a news application. But, you know, you have to take it seriously when this many young people and the next generation of readers and, and news consumers are on this platform. So it, it's a platform that, you know, the next generation of adults are going to be on. And even I know a lot of parents who, you know, their kids are on it, so they have to be on it, too. So it could be collecting valuable intel. Yeah, but what I think what's not being discussed is where is the national security threat here? You know, this is data. Is data a national security threat? I mean, with Huawei, you could understand because it's it's hardware and software that's been embedded would be embedded into our telecommunication system and would presumably create a capability if the Chinese wanted to take it over to to bring down our system or to block communications if that's what the Chinese chose to do with it. I can see a national security nexus with there, but what Scott basically is saying is massive amounts of personal data is potentially being shipped to China. I mean, TikTok says it's not, number one, so there's kind of a, a factual question there, but let's assume yes. it is. What is the national security threat there? I see the privacy threat. I'm not excited about my personal data being shipped to China, 
but I'm not sure how that impacts U.S. national security. Scott, why are you well, worried about this? Well, it's a confusing thing. They haven't actually said directly what the national security problems are, except that it's ultimately the decisions that get made about this data will happen in the People's Republic of China. And look, as I see it, there are three different models out there for data. There's the European model, which is all about protection. There's the Chinese model, which is really about social control. And there's the American model, which is about revenue. All right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. we, we would like to let our social media companies make money. And, and we've got some privacy concerns, but not nearly the extent that Europe does. And we, we allow the data to be used, but not nearly to the extent that China does. So it's not really so much hair splitting as there's a philosophical difference. But it's not surprising to me that technology people in the United States would view, I mean, a quote that I found was, TikTok is, is essentially or fundamentally parasitic. It, I mean, it basically exists to collect information on you. Yeah, but it's not a stretch to think that the Chinese government could weaponize personal information. Oh, I'm sure they could. They right? do it with their own citizens. Yeah. So so what's to stop them from weaponizing? Well, what, but what does that mean, Andrew? What does weaponize information mean? You know, if they collect personal information from U.S. citizens and use it to blackmail U.S. citizens, perhaps? I don't know. I understand it in China. It's an element of social control and they're collecting information about you and who you meet with and where you go. And yes, they can use that against you, but they can all they can arrest you because you're in their territory. We're not in their territory. They can't arrest us here. Can they blackmail us? I suppose so. If you're a 14 year old kid, you know, what's the point of blackmailing you? I mean, this is all very hypothetical. But so if you're a parent of 14 year old kid and the Chinese start saying, well, we're going to do something to your 14 year old kid, that's the ultimate leverage. Yeah, I just don't see what they're going to do besides. I don't even know. But I mean, well, what looks like they decided that the U.S. affiliate of TikTok is going to be sold off. So, okay, so what are the implications of this here? Why is President Trump suggesting that the United States government gets a cut of the deal? Is that even legal? It's a shakedown, pure and simple. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Another great American tradition. Well, maybe this is the New York real estate tradition, okay? The, you know, uh, payoffs and shakedowns. But there's there's no reason and there's no legal reason in the world why the United States should get a piece of the action for a transaction between private parties. Uh, and it's particularly ironic coming from somebody who, who argues that he's a Republican. I mean, the whole Republican philosophy is to let markets prevail, you know, and if you've got two companies that want to enter into a transaction, it doesn't strike me to be a very Republican principle to come in for the government to come in and say, I want to cut uh, and I'm not going to let you do it unless I get my share. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Well, you're right about the typical orientation of Republicans. I would note that Donald Trump was basically a liberal Democrat uh, before he uh, made a successful hostile takeover of the Republican Party in 2015 and 2016. Having said that, uh, it's not unusual for when when a government regulation uh, essentially influences a commercial transaction for the government to have a say in what happens. I would take you back to the auto bailout. All right. The Hummer brand disappeared in the uh, bailout of General Motors. Why? Well, it, Hummer brand didn't fit with the then administration's philosophy about climate change, and they wanted to get rid of it. Because it got four miles to the gallon. Right. Okay. And they got rid of it. Now, the brand is actually a very valuable commodity. It's it's certainly a valuable brand image. And there are lots of effort to try to bring it back as an electric vehicle or something. But that was a point where the government came in and extracted some value uh, in the middle of the deal. The government was providing some value. It was a bailout. The government was providing funding. Well, in this case, they're, they're forcing the sale. 
You know, that I just thought of something. That would be a great name for a rock and roll band, Electric Hummer. Ooh, you're right. It'd have to be a 90s band, but yeah, yeah you're oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> it seems to me if, if, if the government has a stake in the transaction, I mean, a financial stake via a loan or a loan guarantee or some kind of advance, yeah. then sure, it, it, you know, it, it has the right to impose conditions. But at least so far, what's being talked about here is Chinese company A, ByteDance, selling one of its entities to U.S. company B, in this case, rumored Microsoft. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. The, by the way, the deal makes a lot of sense for Microsoft. Because if you look at their business model under the current leadership, they have an installed base, which is their sort of bread and butter. But they're trying to basically buy users as they go forward. So they bought LinkedIn. They buy platforms with large user bases as they're sort of the, their move toward growth. So this this fits right in with the strategy. Well, and they also, oh, yeah. it doesn't make the waves, but they have a gaming division too uh, that yes. I think has been fairly they successful. They bought Minecraft for the same reason. That was the, yeah. the big one, yeah. Actually, one of my son's uh, friends works for them and designs games, yeah. as I recall. So uh, I think they're interested in expanding their their consumer, uh, non-business, but, you know, sort of yes. consumer slash entertainment. No, I think you're right. And yeah. I spent a lot of time this morning and yesterday trying to figure out what the United States has to, government has to say about this. Because everybody's saying, well, you know, CFIUS has to approve it. That didn't make any sense to me because CFIUS, with the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, their mandate is to review foreign companies buying American companies. Uh, this is the reverse. This is an American company buying a foreign company. CFIUS doesn't have any jurisdiction. And what I finally learned, thanks to some experts, is that that in a way, CFIUS is kind of the, the catalyst because what ByteDance basically did, it acquired some American assets, uh, musically being the main one, and that had to be reviewed by CFIUS. And CFIUS has authority to retroactively uh, disapprove transactions that have occurred. So CFIUS has apparently ordered the parent to divest its U.S. assets, which it can do. And that is sort of a catalyzing effect because what it does is tell ByteDance, you have a choice. You can close down uh, or you can sell. Now, it, it doesn't seem to me that that CFIUS or the USG and the US government in general has a lot to say about who buys uh, or the terms of, of the transaction with the single exception of wanting to satisfy itself that the ultimate result does not retain Chinese control. That makes sense. Because that's the that's the nexus with CFIUS. And CFIUS can review the transaction to make sure that uh, the divestiture, if you will, is complete. And the acquiring party, which is presumably going to be an American, has either 100% control or that the Chinese have zero control. But that's the end of it. Now, Trump has added this, you know, and we want to cut, which is sort of frustrating. But, you know, I think that's that's the way it will play out. It's not a question of them having to overtly approve the transaction, but they can certainly get in the way of it if they don't like it. So what do you guys think is going to happen here with this? Well, I think there's no uh, commission for the U.S. government, ultimately, that this will, this will blow over. And it looks to me like Microsoft will acquire the domestic TikTok entity, such as it is, and uh, all parties are at least, you know, reasonably uh, remain whole despite Although there's no doubt disappointment on the side of the Chinese parent company because there's a growth market here that they've had to uh, they've had to surrender. 
So it's an interesting precedent because this won't be the last social media platform to originate in China. That's the key point. I mean, less serious, I think Trump's next move is to say all the negotiations have to take place at the Trump International Hotel in Washington. I mean, that will probably be the next thing that he says. But uh, Scott makes a more important <laughs> point, which is there are other uh, Chinese entities that are operating in the United States, not in the same way. I mean, TikTok is is sort of unique in that it's caught on. I mean, it really has created a, an identifiable brand and a significant amount of U.S. viewership. It, it occurred to me that if Trump actually shut them down, you'd probably get a teenage revolt. Uh, but then it also occurred to me that, that he probably doesn't care because most of them are under 18 and can't vote. So let him demonstrate. It doesn't matter. But, you know, you've got Alibaba, you've got WeChat. I mean, WeChat in the United States, I think, is most, mostly used by, you know, the Chinese that are living here because they have WeChat at home. That's the way they communicate with their friends and relatives at home. Uh, and they want to be able to do that here. But it's not a big chunk of the American market. Neither is Alibaba for the time being. There were previous attempts when Ant Financial, which is an Alibaba sub, wanted to acquire MoneyGram, which is a money movement entity, payment entity, that was blocked by CFIUS. So this is, is not the first time, uh, and that goes back a couple of years, that was not the first time the Chinese have taken a hit, and this won't be the last, I'm sure. Yeah, we're going to look for more drama in this space because th these platform entities are all global in, in nature or global in their appeal. It's a management problem for the future. How do they retaliate against us? Are they going to take it out on U.S. companies like Google, Facebook, well, they already Microsoft? Have. I mean, those are all blocked in China already. I'm not sure who else. What else can they do, though? Well, watch this space for Microsoft, who is uh, at the moment the recipient of this particular decision and the potential beneficiary. But Microsoft has a large installed base of uh, Microsoft Office software in China. And so uh, most of which they carefully. will tell you is pirated. Yes. I mean, I once had a kind of an interesting conversation with them back years ago when they were busy trying to sell windows to everybody and complained to me at one point that, well, like 94% of the windows copies being sold at the time were pirated. And, you know, the U.S. launched one of its many anti-piracy drives and Microsoft came back a few years later and said, well, now only 88% of the windows being sold in China were pirated. So is that a victory that it went from 94 to 88? You know, but it's still 88. But it, then it occurred to me that if I were Microsoft and I was trying to establish market share, which is a classic Japanese tactic going back to the 80s, I'm not sure that I'd care if they were pirated because they're gonna come back to me for the next version and the next version and the next version. Uh, and I'd rather have everybody using Microsoft, even if it's pirated, than having, you know, only 10% of the population using Microsoft and everybody else using something different. Yeah, at some point, it's hard to pay dividends on, uh, on market share, but there is an, an argument for being the, uh, the installed base, almost regardless of sales. Yeah, and in an economy that works on platforms, which increasingly is what we've got, uh, it makes a big difference. You know, if they're using your platform, even if they stole it from you, that still kind of gives you an advantage when it comes to uh, patches, maintenance, uh, new sure. versions. People need to think through what is uh, how this actually works out in practical terms in the economy. Speaking of China, the United States added sanctions over the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China this past week. What do you guys make of this? 
This is Office of Foreign Assets Controls uh, uh, Sanctions, uh, so run by the Treasury Department. And it's both a couple of companies and two specific individuals. And some would say it's about time. Yes, I think it is about time. The abuses are, are well-known, well-documented, and, and uh, in some ways horrific. The real question is how much effect it will have because many of the products and services don't reach the U.S. market and probably never have and never will. That's the question. It, it opens up a complicated uh, tracing process. And we have a, a CSIS expert, actually, who... Amy Lair, who, who does this. She has a new report. It's on CSIS.org right now about the Uyghurs, and you can see it on our website. I believe that one of the Chinese companies that was sanctioned, among other things, uh, is in the cotton business. Uh, a lot of uh, cotton is grown in Xinjiang province, and uh, a lot of that cotton ends up in textiles. And a lot of those textiles end up in apparel, and a lot of that apparel ends up in the United States. So that's a long supply chain there that goes from cotton to textiles to apparel, many stops along the way, uh, not all of them in China. But one of the things that's going on right now, particularly if you're a brand name manufacturer and are sensitive to consumer boycotts, uh, you want to make sure that your supply chain is clean, if you will, because you don't want people carrying signs outside your store saying, you know, this apparel is made by slave labor or this apparel made by Uyghurs that are kept in concentration camps or whatever the charge happens to be. One of the things I learned when I was running a trade association is that companies that are in a consumer business are in a little bit different position than companies that make parts and components. If you make wire harnesses for Boeing, maybe people are going to demonstrate against Boeing for some reason that has never occurred to me, but they're never going to figure out that you know where the wire harnesses come from, and they're not going to show up at your plant in Connecticut. But, you know, if there's anti-American demonstrations in Beijing for some unrelated reasons, you know, the front line are Dunkin' Donuts and KFC and the people that have glass storefronts. Uh, and they're very sensitive to brand name boycotts and demonstrations. And uh, if you're in the apparel business where branding is very, very important, you want to take great care that your supply chains are impeccable. I think, in, in this day and age. Scott, I mean, you probably ran into this at, at P&G. Yes. I mean, we, we actually had a lot of efforts uh, when I was with Procter & Gamble. The China business made a particular effort to make sure our brands were seen as local brands. They were produced locally. Uh, the R&D was local. They were sold in local stores. The major aim was to make sure that people saw these P&G brands as something their mother used or something their family has used. So essential to localize the brand. But you're always, you're always sensitive to repercussions. And the, the brand is so valuable. The idea of the brand and, and what it represents to consumers is so valuable. You go to great lengths to protect it. Yeah, you can't have a Nike or an Under Armour sweatshirt or an Adidas sweatshirt knowing that the cotton was made on slave labor by Uyghurs in China. It's as simple as that. Yeah, as Bill pointed out, it's a long supply chain. And keep in mind, China is a large consumer market for apparel, and, and it may be possible for the companies involved to entirely avoid apparel that's ultimately sold in America, but it's a difficult, complicated issue. Well, and the problem for Americans is simply finding out. You know, right. co cotton is at the front end of the supply chain, and it goes through many, many steps. There's actually a book that's been written about the travels of a t-shirt. It's a fascinating book that traces the path of a t-shirt from where the cotton was grown to ultimately the store that it's sold in and actually the aftermarket. 
because it turns out there's a huge aftermarket for used T-shirts in, in Africa. And the book traces the thing all the way through. Uh, we taught the book one year in one of my classes, and I was particularly intrigued by it because a lot of the cotton, they used a particular T-shirt. You know, the guy bought a shirt in Florida and then tried to unravel metaphorically the supply chain. He traced it back, among other things, to a guy in Texas who ran a cotton ranch. And the guy's name was the same as mine. And I thought, well, this is interesting. There's people in the ranch family that are growing cotton. But it, it he had to do a whole book to talk about the complexity of the supply chain. It's not easy. Uh, and if you want to cover up your steps, which nobody in Texas particularly wants to do, but if you're in Xinjiang province and want to cover up your steps, there's ways to do that. Well, that secondary market is an important one, and nobody really thinks of it, but that's the place for all the former Cleveland Browns quarterbacks. If you travel in Africa, <laughs> you'll see Brandon Wheaton jerseys. You'll see Johnny, Johnny Manziel, Manziel jerseys. Yeah, yeah one, of the, one of the 47 quarterbacks since the last championship. Brady yeah. Quinn. Oh, yeah. Is that because yeah. there's yeah. no market for them in the U.S., Scott? That's exactly right. The, right. the failure rate is fairly high. Right. <laughs> so. I'm going to write a book about my T-shirts from college that I still have stored you know, in a Ziploc preserved bag for my sons so they can carry them on because they don't fit me anymore so they can carry on to you know themselves and then their children and their children so hopefully some of these precious t-shirts from new orleans some of them now defunct uh, establishments like jimmy's the great jimmy's do you want my autograph bruce hornsby in the range t-shirt oh that's big that's big. that's the problem it wasn't big enough it didn't fit me <laughs> but you did find a, a target customer, so that's good. I have it somewhere. I got it at an auction for some reason. I don't know. It was for charity, and I bid on it, but it was uh, not that's my smartest cool. move since I couldn't fit into it. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of complications, now I've got to ask you guys. Liz Truss, the UK's international trade secretary, and I love her name because speaking of football, the Ravens slogan is Big Truss, as in Big Trust, and her name is spelled T-R-U-S-S, which is the Ravens slogan, Big Truss. She's going to be here this week to express frustration in American officials over punitive tariffs levied on British goods in her first face-to-face -face since negotiations for a US-UK trade agreement began. Why are we fighting with our brothers and sisters in the UK about trade? Well, in that case, uh, we're fighting with them because they're one of the Airbus partners. So they're mm. complicit in enormous subsidies to Airbus, uh, uh, which is the case we won. That's one of the rare cases where it's not Donald Trump making stuff up uh, and bullying other people. This is a real WTO case where the Europeans did really bad subsidies that really disadvantaged Boeing, and we won. And the UK is not the only bad guy, but they're one of them. Uh, so that's one of the problems uh, where I don't have a lot of sympathy for Secretary Truss. The other part is they're also the victims of the steel tariffs. And there I have more sympathy. But, you know, they, they were put on the EU. And uh, when they were part of the EU, and it goes back to that, I think she's arguing that now that we're out, we should get special treatment. Yeah, it was a 15-year-old case, so all is forgiven. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think Lighthouse is going to buy that, but you know, it's a good argument. But look, there's in the background there's a negotiation of a potential free trade agreement with Britain. Both uh, Prime Minister Johnson and President Trump are committed to it, and the negotiating authority expires in April, so they need to make some progress on it if if it's going to go anywhere. And the Brits didn't want to wait this out until after the election, apparently. Well, I I don't think you can. And if, you're, if your goal is to conclude the agreement 
under the current congressional authority, I don't think you can wait. I think you've got to proceed and do a good job with the Congress, who will be the ultimate, you know, have the ultimate say about whether this is uh, acceptable or not. Yeah, but technical correction here. The authority doesn't expire uh, until July 1. But because you have to submit something 90 days in advance in order to use the authority, you have to submit it 90 days before the authority expires. That's where the April 1 date comes from. But the authority yeah. actually exists longer than that. True. and But uh, the key is time's a-wasting. And while you can do polite information sharing over Zoom or some video conferencing tool, negotiation face-to-face is probably necessary to close a deal. Well, Lighthizer has said that. Uh, he was yeah. asked about this in, in, I think, one of his testimonies, and he said that he didn't think that at the end of the day you could really close these things without face-to-face contact. So it's good this is happening. I don't think this leads to closure this week, but it's good to have these uh, these check-ins regularly. Sure. So welcome to Washington, Secretary Truss. There you go. Who has been here well, before, but not in the context of the negotiation. And not since Corona. Right. Well, gentlemen, it has been great checking in with you. I hope to see you all on TikTok soon. Maybe you guys can do like uh, some kind of dance routine together. Trade guys dance. Well, look, maybe we could use TikTok to launch our new line of merchandise, trade guys yes. merchandise. Yes. So we'll, we'll get the kids working on that. Yeah. Okay. We got to do this. Big trust in trade. We will see you guys. Same time, same bat channel, still in Bethesda, still listening to Dr. Fauci and quarantining. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.